now as we take a look at uh, Psalm 32, Lord, the beauty of uh, forgiveness and how easy you've made it to be right with God, the joy of having our clean conscience before God. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you as you take your seat uh, this evening. Well, kids love to play hide-and-seek, don't they? Uh, I noticed it again. We had our two adorable grandchildren, who are six and four now, uh, over uh, while Dad and Mom were out for dinner. And the parents pull up, and both kids go into hiding. And by the way, I have an illustration for you there. (laughs) Are they not adorable? Come on. And little Cora Jane was born on Barb's birthday and looks like her in all of her baby pictures. And Xander's uh, looks just like me. Just kidding. (laughs) Oh, you didn't have to laugh that loud. All right. Looks like Barb's side of the family and Zach, who looks just like Barb. All right. Well, they were over. Now that you've got that, thank you for that slide. Uh, Parents pull up. The kids go into hiding. You know they want their mom and dad to come in and start searching and find them. And it's game on. The door cracks open. And, you know, they pretend to uh, look for uh, the grandkids, you know. Uh, I say pretend because they usually hide in plain sight. You know, you can see their legs from behind the curtains and all of that. And so then the delightful squeal comes when they are found. And that's what it's all about. We grew up uh, playing hide and seek. The kids were little. We could play it over and over again. It's funny how much we love that game. We love hiding, but down deep isn't the game all about being found. Um, And maybe that's why we humans really love it so something about it reminds us of our spiritual condition a game we all play with god over and over again which began not as a game but more like a tragedy back in the garden called eden where all of our troubles began and sin entered the world adam and eve uh had Had it made in the shade, really? Uh, Enjoyed paradise, perfect union uh, with one another, walking in perfect harmony uh, with the Lord. And all of that came to an abrupt halt. Um, The serpent's temptation, Eve was deceived. Adam disobeyed. They ate from the tree which God said, thou shalt not. They realized what they had done and the shame of it all. And they made coverings for themselves and began a wicked game of hide and seek. And so I'll quote from Genesis 3. When the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. You know, that's kind of in plain view of the Lord, you know. Verse 9, but the Lord God called to the men, where are you? You know, ollie, ollie, oxen free, you know. (laughs) Verse 10, he answered, I heard you in the garden, so I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. 
Now this, I don't know if you're aware of this, but inspired the first episode of Naked and Afraid. <laughs> the, the first game actually of hide and seek here, but minus all of the childhood fun. Pretty serious stuff actually. Uh, it, it's a game mankind has been playing with God ever since, and both unbelievers who are estranged from him, hiding from him, but believers too. Believers who have been reconciled, we still play that game, as we're about to see here in Psalm 32. Uh, when we get a sense of sin and shame, sin that we've committed, we're tempted to run and hide from him before whom we must give an account. That's how we are. But hiding from the author of life doesn't make any sense. And it's really a dreadful place to be when we're out of fellowship with the Lord, hiding and concealing things that ought to be brought into the light and confessed. As King David is happy to tell us, it's no fun doing that. Uh, here in Psalm 32. So he's a man with some experience. You know, we, he's called, we, we call him a, a, an Old Testament saint of God, you know, and, and he's, got a, he's got a heart after God, but he's also a serious sinner. And uh, so he's got some experience and he's going to share his story, the good, the bad, and the ugly of it all, the agony of covering up sins that need to be revealed and healed by God as we confess them to him and turn from them and the joy of coming clean and finding that forgiveness. So Psalm 32, all 11 verses here before you now. Uh, verse 1, blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. Now the Lord interjecting here. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Finishing up with many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all you who are upright in heart. That is Psalm 32, all 11 verses. And so... Good news for the guilty. That's a, probably a good title for this song. Good news for the guilty. No need to keep hiding in fear. No need to be avoiding your father. No need to remain in shame, especially if you've already come to know him, uh, like is the case here with David. So this God-inspired song uh, really tells the story of um, 
joy, the joy of forgiveness, verses 1 and 2, note takers. The joy of forgiveness, verses 1 and 2. The agony of concealing your sin, verses 3 and 4. The remedy for a guilty conscience, verse 5. And the way to avoid the whole nasty scenario of hide and seek and having God have to send frustration and trouble into your life to get your attention so that you'll come to him and surrender, drop to your knees and just confess it already uh, to him. That's verses 6 through 11. The lessons David learned from this uncomfortable time in his life. Psalm 51 is tied to Bathsheba and that terrible sin uh, with adultery and which led to uh, murder. And so a serious, serious season of horrendous sin. And uh, he kept quiet and tried to go on with his life for a good part of the year. And uh, this psalm, Psalm 32, is in conjunction with Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is the repenting psalm of the whole ordeal. And then he makes a promise in Psalm 51, as we're going to see later on. Uh, He says, Lord, I will use this horrible experience to teach sinners the lessons that I learned through this terrible time. He says that in 51 about the scenario. And then he writes Psalm 32 as the lessons that he learned to keep the promise he made in Psalm 51 comes Psalm 32. So now you've got the context of what we're dealing with. Let's dive in. Verses 1 and 2. How blessed, what joy being restored to the good graces of God and how especially awesome after coming through a season where your relationship with God has been strained to the max. So genuine believers like David, they have something called eternal salvation. So if you have something called eternal salvation, it is eternal. So, you know, an outbreak of sin from your sinful nature isn't enough to take away your eternal salvation, but it's enough to grieve the Holy Spirit and to to put you out of fellowship with God. It won't condemn your soul, but it'll certainly could ruin your life. And uh, yeah, so this is what we're talking about. Um, David and all of us can grieve the Holy Spirit, and that's what's happened. Uh, we're told don't grieve the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, uh, because when you do that, uh, you, you become out of step, out of fellowship, out of sync with God. Until you make amends by confessing and and making things right and uh, turning away from that. And and isn't it true with any relationship that you have, any friendship, even your marriage? When we do something that's offensive or hurtful or or disloyal, uh, you just don't pick up, you know, in the next five minutes of business as usual. You know, just smack somebody in the face, uh, uh, figuratively speaking. You know, you poke somebody in the eye. uh, You know, you've got to say you're sorry. You've got to own the bad behavior. Admit what you did. Confess it. Ask forgiveness. Make any restitution where, where it's necessary and where feasible. And then the friendship can be restored. 
You see, and it's just like the same thing here with God. We can't just, you know, do whatever we want. You know, gossip about somebody and just leave it that way. You know, or, or not forgive somebody or take something that doesn't belong to you or cheat on your taxes or whatever the sin is. You tell a lie. You weren't thinking, you kind of got caught in something, you panicked and you wanted to cover yourself, and so you, you lied. And then you just go on as if nothing happened. And the Lord's like, ah, that doesn't work. In fact, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, where he says, you guys think you can treat each other, you know, sinfully and offend one another, and then come in here and go, praise God, you know, as if I don't care how you're treating people. He says, just don't even write your check. Don't even write your check. Just go, if you come in and you realize, oh my goodness, somebody's got something against me. You know, I really, I broke a confidence. I got caught caught talking about somebody behind their back and they're offended. He said, just leave church when you think about it. Just go home and get it right. Then come back because you're out of fellowship with me. That's amazing. And Nine times out of ten, I mean, we know, I know, every time I'm out of fellowship with God. And I often say, are you like this with everybody else? I mean, right away, I just feel that mm, right in front of me, like, oh, no, you're not going another step until you make this right. Oh, my goodness. And this is what's happening <laughs> to King David. And so three sets of words here three words for sin in these opening two verses three words different words for sin and three different words for forgiveness to give you a bigger picture of what he means by sinning because all three things are caught up in the Bathsheba story and it just gives you a wider scope of what wrongdoing looks like to God and a, and an equally wide scope of what forgiveness is all about. So in that first clause there, um, we have transgressions. And it's a word that means rebellion, lawlessness, open defiance. It's when the toddler just screams, no in your face, but only you're a grown-up and you do it to God. You know, God, I know what you want me to do. I'm not going to do it. Or God, I know what you don't want me to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. So we speak dishonestly or we withhold mercy or we yield to our lust. Uh, the That Next word forgiven there, so the correlation there, it means to bear or to carry something away, to take it away. So blessed is the person who's had their rebellious deeds carried away. As far as the east is from the west, he carries them away. The gospel is that Jesus took the sin off of you, put it on himself, he wore it and bore it and carried it to the place of the skull which is uh, Golgotha in Hebrew and in Greek it's Calvary. And there your rebellion met its due justice and its penalty there. The next clause, the next set is in the next clause of verse 1. The, the, the idea here, blessed is the one whose sins are covered. The word sins there 
is closer to the New Testament idea of missing the mark. It's the archer who takes aim uh, at the bullseye and he veers off intentionally. Yes, it can include like I'm really trying, but it still falls short. But it also includes and it really emphasizes the idea. God says, hit that bullseye and you go, okay, that bullseye right there. Thou shalt not lie. Like that intentionally. You don't want anything to do with that target. So you shoot it in the direction you want. Uh, Covered there uh, is kasa in the Hebrew. And I looked it up, so interesting. One of the very first times it's ever used in the Old Testament is Genesis chapter 9. Noah was a, was a good man. He found grace. He was a believer, but he wasn't perfect. So after being cooped up in the ark for a year with all of those animals, and I'm not excusing what he did, but he had a little bit too much wine. Uh, he passed out, but he didn't put his pajamas on. And he's, la- he's laying there naked, laying there. And uh, his bad boy, uh, Ham, son, uh, comes in, sees and wants to shout it to the mountaintops, you know. Look at Dad, you know. But the two righteous boys, they did something different. And I'll quote, Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both of their shoulders and went in the tent backwards and covered over the nakedness of the father. The, the word covered there is the same word as covered over their father. Their faces were turned and they saw not their father's nakedness. So uh, King David is saying here, blessed is the one whose shameful nakedness, moral shortcomings are covered over. And so the last set there is in verse 2. Um, the, the blessed are those who said iniquity really should uh, is the word uh, the Lord does not count against them. The word iniquity means perverted or twisted in heart. It, it's the ugly, warped tendencies, the nasty things about just being self-centered and greedy and lustful and. Uh, envying people that we love and know and resenting them, that kind of just twisted way that we are. And so he says, uh, blessed are you when God doesn't attribute these nasty vices uh, to your accounts. It's an accounting term that means, you know, to impute something, you know. So he he's saying, Blessed are you when God doesn't charge to your account or debit you uh, for these kinds of sins. And so uh, that's what's going on in the first two verses. He says, how happy are you to have such horrible behavior, totally 100% uh, forgiven and pardoned by uh, God by simply faith in him and his uh, son. Uh, So, yeah, so there's one condition for sinners to be able to actually enjoy uh, that forgiveness. Um, And unless you meet that condition, you won't be singing with David. You'll be sighing uh, with David. So uh, that condition is to confess, not hide and pretend like nothing happened. It's to tell others. It's to tell 
responsible parties and pastors or uh, it depends on the sin of course but basically is to not live a double life and so when I kept silent verses 3 now and following my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was sapped so we go from the joy of forgiveness to the agony of concealing our sin. So he rewinds the tape to the darker days where he fell into that horrible sin and didn't deal with it uh, biblically. So he was in the prime of his life. Let's talk about what he did and why God had to deal with him so harshly. Uh, He was in his 30s. He was a strong warrior, rich, powerful king, attractive the bible says he had it all he had everything he wanted except this beautiful young woman who he happened to see through an open window of sorts bathing and a woman he couldn't have because she was uh, married to someone else uh so and and a loyal soldier of his at that who served and happened to be away fighting uh in a war on David's behalf and in a brazen, impulsive, sinful, lawless move, he did something that captured the essence of all three of those terms for sin that he just used. He rebelled against God in a lawless way. He aimed the bow in her direction and yielded to the perverse thought of going after another man's wife, a woman married to a loyal soldier away on the battlefield. So he commits adultery with Bathsheba, as you all know, and it went downhill from there, as you all know as well. She got pregnant with his child, and rather than be found out, just come clean and just bite the bullet and let's just get this out in the light, oh, the story could have been very different. He came up with a diabolical plan. Uh, to cover up his sin and start a wicked game of hide-and-seek with God. So he he managed to get Uriah uh, off the battlefield, home on a furlough. And uh, Uriah returned from battle, and David thanked him for fighting and gave him a bottle of wine and a gift card to uh, dinner and sent him home to be with his wife. Only Uriah has more integrity than David. So even after getting him drunk, Uriah refused to go home and slept in the foyer where the guards hang out. So so David had to go even lower. And so he sends Uriah back carrying in his own hand a letter that tells his commanding officer Joab to put Uriah in the front and then pull back the protection around him so that he would get killed. Not too many days later, David gets the news of uh, he's wanting, the guy who's in his way of what he wants, has been permanently disposed of. And then he made himself look pretty compassionate and noble by taking in the beautiful young widow uh, to be his wife. Mission accomplished. Husband is out of the picture. No one really knows. The time work is going to work perfectly for the baby. Looks like he got away with it. 
So he picks up as if nothing's happened. Another day, another wife for a Middle Eastern king. You know, this par for the course. And so no doubt there was a memorial service for her husband. And David managed to wipe a tear away. And got choked up. Maybe he gave the eulogy. You know, uh, David started to feel something not right in his heart. It began subtly, it grew stronger and stronger every day. It was discomfort or uneasiness and anxiety. Something was eating at him. Like It just felt like his bones were wasting away the strength, the motivation for life. He was down in the dumps. He just had no wind in the sails anymore. Zeal for life was waning. And then there was a wedding. Supposed to be super happy, but it was really hard to smile and laugh. The music is playing, and inside he's like, Whoa, this is hard. But he put up a bold exterior and he dealt with for a good part of a year, as I said, with this inner chaos, uh, you know, and he attended worship services every day, morning and evening. They, they had a little bit of a prayer time in the temples. He was at those things. And then on the Sabbath, he was the head of the whole um, temple area, really, not the high priest, but he certainly was a part of things and the worship and all of that. And all of this time, a Herculean effort to just do the usual things, to talk to the usual people, uh, getting up in the morning, having to look in the mirror. Uh, a friend comes by whose name is Uriah. It's like, oh, you've got the wrong name, buddy. You know, his conscience is on fire. And the more he stalls, the hotter the flames. And instead of coming clean, with a humble, broken confession, taking responsibility, admitting what he had done was evil, making amends where he could. You know, some things can't be fixed. He's not going to bring Uriah back. What does he do? He keeps silent there. And the guilt festers. And all kinds of things go wrong when a human being has unresolved uh, guilt. And so... Our sin is so humiliating, so grotesque, and it makes us look so evil, you know, we really want to distance ourselves from it. You know, whenever anybody gets caught in the paper and it's a huge scandal, they always say, you know, this is not who I really am. Okay, well, you did it, you know, so, but, but. You, you, the only person who can say that is a born-again, a real born-again Christian because it isn't who we really are. We have a sin nature and we can have an outbreak, you see. And that's what's gone on with David. That isn't who, he's actually a man after God's own heart. He has a sinful nature and, and he really sinned in, in kind of the worst way possible there. And so he chose, like many of us do, uh, with shame and fear and ego leading the way to try to cover it up. And so the fig leaves together and turn up the music and drown out the conscience and avoid God as much as one can avoid God, which is pretty much impossible, and go on with our lives uh, play acting like everything's cool. The spiritual irony here is the sin we cover is the 
is what God wants to uncover. And the sin we uncover is the sin God will cover, you see. So, yeah, through all this inner haunting, God is trying to help him. He's imploding. Look, he's imploding. He's saying... uh, he, his bones are wasting away. He has no strength. Uh, and, and unresolved guilt, as I said, manifests itself in physical and emotional ways. Stress-induced ulcers, hypertension, depression, chronic fatigue. He's talking about chronic fatigue. I can't do anything. I can't get out of bed. Because if God is against you and blowing a headwind, and you know it's God is blowing a headwind saying, you've got something to take care of, and you're not going forward until you take care of it. Why get out of bed? Why get off the couch? It's like the reverse of Romans 8, where it says, if God is for you, who could be against you? Well, if God has something against you, Who's going to help you with that? You know, you might as well just give God what God wants. You know, I'm surprised it took a year. So he's saying, this thing's eating me up. He used to be the sweet singer of Israel, adventurous, you know, living life like gusto, you know. But uh, he's just miserable. He's depressed. He's ashamed. He's disappointed in himself. There's no light. There's no reason for joy. There's no get up and go. David Guzik said, there's only one good thing here. One who feels no misery or dryness in such a state of sin has far greater concerns, perhaps, than it's a question of salvation. We ought to feel. And when you feel guilty and you feel God giving you a bad time, that's really a good sign because he considers you his child. You see, if you weren't his child, you know, you could get away with stuff like that. Uh, but he's like, no child of mine. So, so he brings down a little <laughs> attention-getting devices here. Uh, one writer said that the absence of a sense of God is like a miniature hell. Because the whole point of hell is there's no God. And so when we feel, where's God? It's a little bit of hell, you see. Sound effect just to make you all on edge right there. I hope it worked. Good job. Thank you. So, yeah, he's pressing David. David, come to me. Face the truth, man. Look me in the eyes. Look me in the eyes. Talk to me. Confess it. He says, my strength is sapped is in the heat of summer. It's so funny because some friends and I just went to Healdsburg upon the hills and we had a picnic lunch and it was hot. It was hot, hot. And we sat there, I don't know, two hours or so and the heat. And some of us are unprotected in some areas. And boy, when we, and we ate a big lunch and we got in the van Oh my goodness, a wave, a sleeper cell, (laughs) a wave of grogginess washed over everybody that was so quiet in the van. And everybody was like, oh, I need to lay down now. (laughs) And uh, that's when things are not ripe with you and God. Life is flat, listless, no spark, no energy. So anyway, one day, the baby's born... (sighs) maybe three months old, God made a larger move because his uh, 
the waves of discomfort that he was bringing didn't work. David's a stubborn guy. He's a warrior. And uh, so, uh, verse 5 here, then I acknowledged my sin. Something happened. Whoa. Then I acknowledged my sin. I didn't cover it up anymore. I said, I'm going to confess my sins to the Lord. And he forgave me the guilt of my sin. So what happened? So we move now uh, from to the remedy for a guilty conscience and getting right with God. Now, I have written down here, was that so hard? And I, I can't make fun of him because I'm the same way and so are you. I mean, sometimes God just has to beat it out of us. What is wrong with us? You know, it's just like you can make that, you could do this the easy way or the hard way. And nine times out of 10, sinners like to take the harder way. So what what brought about this beautiful uh, confession? Well, the Lord sent his man, Nathan, one of David's friends who had a gift of prophecy there, as a prophet, and he brought a scathing rebuke uh, to help David see and sense and feel the evil. So maybe he's justifying a lot of things in his head. You know how we could do that. But he told them, him this parable and kind of snuck up alongside. And I have it for you, Second Samuel 12, starting in the beginning. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David the story. <laughs> Just the story. There were these two men in a certain town. David, what do you think about this? One was rich, one was dirt poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing. This one little beautiful Bathsheba, whoop, no, a little lamb that he had bought. He, he raised that little lamb. And it grew up with his children and ate from his, the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious as surely as the Lord lives, he vowed. Anyone who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. <laughs> then Nathan said to David, you are that man. Oh, boom. <laughs> ollie, ollie, oxen free. <laughs> we're we're going to be on our knees by that time. <laughs> Paragraph is over. You're not man, David. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. Remember eight years of delivering you? I gave you your master's house and his wives. You had any woman you wanted. And the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, they were divided. And if that wasn't enough, oh, this is the sting. This is what it killed me. I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible thing? For you murdered, here it is. Let's just put it out there, David. You murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites. You killed him with their sword in your hand and stole his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. 
That's amazing. So then comes a list of some pretty painful, humiliating, serious repercussions that will act as chastisements because, you know, you never, you may be forgiven, and I say this all the time, with the Lord, and you always will be if you're genuinely saved and repent, and you have eternal life. He's got, you're going to be forgiven. But not everything can be fixed. And, and there are very painful repercussions. And so, you know, we need to think about that. The wages of sin is death. And unfortunately, the little baby uh, has to die because of that. And it's like, how fair is that? Well, you know, the wages of sin is death. And it's not just for us. It's those who are unfortunate enough to be in our sphere of influence at the time of our sinning to our heart's delight uh, because there's casualties involved. And so now David's ready to confess. And then verse 13 will say, I have sinned against the Lord. He told that to Nathan. The hardest words in the English language. And and I, I think about this. If it's hard for you to own an apology and apologize for a rude statement that you may have said to your spouse or somebody and somebody's offended if it's hard for you to say that you really own that and say you're sorry how much harder is it when the sin is epic you see I have sinned I am sorry please forgive me the Bible says, humble yourself under God's mighty hand and in due time he will exalt you. Uh, Nathan told David, look, you're not going to die. The Lord has atoned for your sin. Uh, but things are, are never going to be the same. It's going to get pretty nasty. And his life was never the same. You know, so uh, in the aftermath of the drama, after Nathan left him, maybe a few days and maybe after the baby died, Then he wrote these words, Psalm 51. There we go. (laughs) That was fast. You fixed that. Nice. Psalm 51, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from all my sin. All three different words there, again, for sin. Like, cleanse me from the whole thing. For I know my transgressions, I get it, I see it, and my sin is always before me. There it is, verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned. This is very important. He's just saying, look, primarily, this is all comes back to you, even when we hurt other people. It's... God made that person. So it all all can be traced back to God. And he's just saying, God, it's all about offending you. I know that. And done what is evil in your sight so that you're proved right when you speak and justified when you judge me. I have no excuses. I'm not going to offer, well, you know, none of that. Surely I was sinful at birth. Like, this is a sin problem, God, from like when when the doctor spanked me, I, I wanted to smack him back, you know. That's the kind of thing there, surely. (laughs) Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the innermost parts. You teach me wisdom there. Verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop. It was a medicinal herb that they used in ceremonies. and, And I will be clean, wash me, and I'll be whiter than the snow. Let 
me here joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart. Lord, renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Um, it's impossible for God to do that. You know, he can, you can sense that distance, but once you know the Lord, restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way and sinners will turn back to you. Now move on in Psalm 32 to the next, I think it's verse six or wherever we left off. Therefore, let everyone who's godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. This whole last section is here are my lessons. Here's I'm doing this. I'm going to teach you what I learned through this. And we can read through to the end there and then come back. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. The Lord's speaking, but he's letting the Lord speak through him, keeping his promise. I will counsel you. Here's the way to avoid uh, sin and keep yourself on the blessed straight and narrow path. Uh, do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they won't come to you. You can back up to verse 6 again. I just wanted you to see that there's a connection between Psalm 51 and promising to teach sinners the way back to God. Because if anybody's listening to this and thinks, maybe I want to take a walk on the wild side, then he's going to say, I'm going to teach you a few things here. So uh, first of all, he says, verse six, let everyone who's godly pray to you while you may be found. This is very interesting here. Uh, genuine godliness is a person who, who comes to term with their own ungodliness. So the godly person relates to verses one through five and realizes there but the grace of God go I and that I have sinned. Right, And so here's wisdom as a godly person. You know that you have ungodly ways about you so that when you sin, you confess your sin in a timely um, manner or fashion and you keep short accounts with God. This is what he's saying when he says, therefore let godly people understand their own ungodliness and their vulnerability to, to sin and pray to God right away. While you may be found is really kind of hard to understand. But what it means, because while, while you're breathing, God can always be accessed and found. Uh, but here's what he means. With each passing moment, your situation of unconfessed sin and out of fellowship with God is deteriorating. So while he may be found is a sense of when he's pinging your conscience, don't put that off another moment. While he may be found, while you're soft enough to hear and to respond. And then he says, uh, says if you do that, pray right away, It'll be before the flood rises, the flood waters of guilt and anxiety and conviction and your bones wasting away and something eating at you and all of the headwind blowing in your direction and having to put up with all of the displeasure of God. He says, no, no, no. Get it out of the way so that 
you're ahead of those floods and that now you are, instead of hiding your sin from God, you're hiding yourself in God, you see, as a refuge there. Let's finish up eight and nine here. We're almost there. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Now the Lord is speaking. I love this. I don't know if I made uh, Proverbs 2, 1 through 5 come over right away. Uh, Did you get that? Good. Look at all the action verbs here because when he says, I will instruct you, I will teach you in the way you should go, I will counsel you and watch over you there's this idea that there's some cooperation and effort on our part needed to, to keep ourselves from straying off the path. My son, if you accept, look at all the verbs. Accept my words. If you store up my commands within you, turn your ear to wisdom, apply your heart to understanding. If you call out for insight, if you cry aloud for understanding, if you look for it, ask for silver. If you search for it, ask for a hidden treasure. Then... Then you'll understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So I hear David saying, and and the Lord is saying through David, I need some cooperation. I've got what you need. I've got the grace. I'll keep you safe. But work with me, people. Work with me. That's what I hear uh, him saying. And I love when you go back there to verses 8 and 9. Don't be like the horse whose nature is to run away. And don't be like the mule, whose nature is to refuse to move. A mule requires a bit or bridle or really a riding crop, you know, is implied there, rigorous training. Uh, One writer said, David is chiming in with the Lord. Don't be like these animals, like I was. And the writer said, do not oblige your maker to have to continually resort to afflicting you with troubles and frustrating your path to keep you on track or recover you after you've gone astray. Don't keep forcing God to have to kind of send a crisis your way to get your attention. You see, crisis, crises will come. And certainly not just because we're acting badly, but because we're acting in the right way sometimes. Uh, But you know, you'll know. God will just tell you. There's a connection here. See? Now, and I do notice, notice this. Don't be like a mule. And what's the object here? The object isn't the command that he gives to the mule. It's that it's not the behavior he's after. Like the mule should do this behavior. It's that the mule won't come to him. That's amazing. That Before you can obey any moral command, you have to have intimacy. The whole point of of Old Testament and New Testament Christianity is to be near to God and intimate with God and in love with God and God's love in your heart and you loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's the point, to come to him. It's not about, you know, it's to keep the command, keep the command. No, you know, why 
Does the mule need to be slapped around and beat or it won't come to you? That's the point. And then as we're intimate with God, then right behavior can come. And only then, because there's no way to do keep God's commands without being intimate with the command giver, you see. And then we finish up. We made it, verses 10 and 11. There were moments when I doubted we would get here. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Like I've always said, you know, the last lesson here is common sense to the max and just says, look, do you, do you, as I just said, I think a couple weeks ago, do you want an ice cream cone or a punch in the face? You know, which do you want? I mean, it doesn't sound like rocket science to me. Many are the woes of the wicked. And David had a little bit of those woes there because he acted wickedly and he felt it. Wow, there's a lot of trouble out there when you're not right with God. Don't go there. Wouldn't you rather just be surrounded by the blessings of God but in the heat of the moment? and you're on the rooftop, it would have done David a lot more good had he looked up to God and not down to that roof. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous sing, all you who are upright in heart. And so it ends now with be glad in the Lord and rejoice. And really what the whole psalm was about was giving you cause to be glad and rejoice in the Lord, giving you reasons. So here are the reasons. Remember the blessedness of forgiveness. All your sins washed away, clean. Remember the joy of a cleansed conscience. Remember the awful stress of living a double life and the hell of a guilty conscience, feeling condemned and like God is against you. Remember how easy it is to get on track, acknowledge your sin before him, confess and turn. And remember the real joy in life is not found in sinning, but it's found in doing God's will. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your love, the joy that we have, knowing that there's nothing between my Lord and my uh, heart, my soul. We pray, God, that you would help us to take these words to heart now, seal them inside of us, Lord, and uh, write them on the tablet of our hearts that we might walk with you uprightly. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Brock's Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8 9.30 and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.